This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our podcast is available for you 24-7, wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you'll find us. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXMBusiness. In our recent discussion of the annual Women in the Workplace report, we talked about the appalling lack of progress for Black women and women of color in the corporate pipeline. It really brought into high relief how critically important it is for us to understand more deeply the relationship between race and gender if we're going to advance DEI in any meaningful way, which is why today's guest could not be more on time. Dr. Ella Bellsmith is one of the co-authors of the recently reissued Tour de Force, Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. Groundbreaking when it was first released in 2001, its aching relevance and instructional value has only grown, especially as we take on the challenging work of developing authentic allyship. Dr. Ella Bell Smith is a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College and a consultant to Fortune 500 companies and public institutions alike. Considered by industry and academe to be one of the leading experts in the management of race, gender, and class in organizational life, I could not be more honored to have her join us today. Ella, welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. I am so excited to be on the show. Oh, man, you know, I've waited for this for a long time (laughs) and I've listened before and I'm like, oh, boy, Ah." so I'm just tickled pink uh, or red. I'm wearing red today. So you look fabulous. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Um, so so for the people who have just tuned in, who may not know about your book and know about your work in general, could you give us a little background? One. When you wrote this book, how did you go about doing the research? What prompted the work? How did you get this unbelievable like, set of resources and insights? Oh, gosh. This journey is over 30 years old. Uh, I would say that this is my academic career. Um, when Stella Como, my wonderful co-author, when we began this journey... Uh, there were very few books about women in management, period. Most of those books were really addressed to how women can be more like men. Um, And when you really looked into any samples, like breaking the glass ceiling, there was one. Um, And when I asked Ann Morrison, who's a wonderful researcher, when I asked Ann, uh, well, did you could you pull anything out of her story? She said, no, there were no differences. And Stella and I both knew that there had to be differences between black and white women in the workplace. We just, you know, as a black woman, I was like, nah. When there were writings or research on black men managers, black male managers or ma- black managers, they focused on black men. The research focused on black men. So black women were literally literally falling in between the cracks. And when we went um, for a proposal from, from the Rockefeller Foundation, we really wanted to do all women of color. Mm-hmm. They told us, no, that was too much. Um, there was no way we could handle that successfully. So they suggested that we do black men and black women. And Stella and I both said, no, 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 no. We wanted to do black women and white women. And they agreed and we got subsequent funding from the Ford Foundation as well. Um, We wanted to tell their stories, both of the women, because we were still at a time period where there were few women period in management. Um, We wanted to talk about where they came from, what gave them the audacity to think that they could be in corporate America. 
um, when women were told you can be a, a nurse, a teacher, or a social worker, or a secretary, right? Right. So we wanted to be able to distinguish their journey, number one. What happened when they got into the corporate world, number two? How did they navigate? Were there differences in what they experienced and how they navigated? And then number three, which is the part that I think is the juiciest, um, what was their relationship with each other? Yep. And that was the thing that got us going. We had an interracial research team, number one. Um, we did life. We had a survey, but we also did life history analysis. I think there is something about narrative research that allows you not only to see the forest, mm-hmm. but to see the kind of trees in the forest and what does the the floor of the forest look like, um, which we don't capture when we do just um, quantitative research. Uh, so I really wanted to get the whole lay of the land. We spent up to 10 hours interviewing women, uh, multiple trips to their homes, sometimes to their workplace, six o'clock in the morning, 12 <laughs> o'clock at night, because these, these ladies were busy. Um, and they were really doing fabulous things. We oversampled African-American women. Why? Because there was nothing there about their story. Their stories just did not exist. So we felt that we could rightfully justify having more Black women in the sample. Uh, By the end of it, we had 120 women who interviewed with giving us their life history analysis. And it took us forever uh, because a transcript could be anywhere from 60 pages to 150 pages to do the analysis. Can you imagine for 120 women? Ella, even reading their stories in the book, which you've brilliantly synthesized for the reader into patterns and groupings of women, they're so deep, they're so deep, they're so rich that I can't imagine what the raw data was like. (laughs) We were dancing with the women in the room, you know, I mean, they had, they had personas, you know. I can tell. So let me ask you you something. And you talk about their audacity of ambition, but there was an audacity of ambition reflected in this project. Um, What my women colleagues, women faculty, um, I see and they report is the desire to do research in this area has been there for a long time. But a lot of women, particularly tenure track professors, not supported in these areas of research, which is part of why there's such an absence of it in the canon. Oh, how did ding, you ding, get? Ding, 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 ding. Oh. How did you get the political, social support, um, or protect yourselves um, in your own career trajectory so that you could devote this much time to this much work? I'm so glad you asked that question. Stella had tenure. Okay, she tenured to me, so she was she was she was safe, and she had published in other areas. I was the new kid on the block. Um, and I had always been interested in looking at Black women, African-American women. And I was told I would not get a job. I would not get interviews. I would not get a job. Okay, I got the job. My first academic position was at the Yale School of Organization and Management. I was very lucky to have Clay Alderfer as my mentor. And he was very clear, you need to stay with this. This is where you need to be. Okay. When I left Yale, uh, the reality changed. I went to MIT Sloan School, and they basically, the powers that be there in my area told me, you know, this is not an interesting subject. This is not going to make a difference. You'll never get tenure on this. Uh, We can barely promote you on this. Um, And you need to find a senior faculty member, mostly white males, by the way, who you can hook your little red wagon to uh, if they want you and, you know, duplicate what they're doing or help them in their research and publish off of that. Uh, gee, thanks. Um, I think I am of the belief that, first of all, I'm, I'm a little colored girl from the South Bronx. That's number one. Um, second of all, 
uh, my mother had a sixth grade education. My dad had an eighth grade education. Um, the last place I expected to be was in a PhD program in my life. I wanted to be a elementary school principal in the South Bronx. Um, the fact that I was able to get the PhD and go through the trials and the tribulations to get the membership card, mm -hmm. um, because it's a membership, I'm Absolutely. very clear about that, um, was only by the help of God. So who I listen to is not who everybody else listens to. If God wanted me to get this PhD, I got this PhD, then if this was my vision, then quite frankly, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, I didn't get my PhD to please you. How <laughs> <Right. laughs> that be? I, I got this PhD to be able to make a difference and help my people. And I was very clear, W.E.B. Du Bois has always been my role model, uh, as well as Joyce Ladner and all the Black female sociologists who embraced me um, in under in, in graduate school, um, so that that gave me resilience, determination, and I'm stubborn. You know, tell me I can't do something and watch me try to do it. Um, and I'm I'm very lucky in that uh, while Sloan was not the right place for me, Dartmouth has been the right place for me. Tuck has been the right place. Um, where you know my work is supported, where we, uh, you know, I'm I'm encouraged, and the work is recognized, which makes all the difference in the world. It's a big, big difference. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio and Sirius XM, Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is the extraordinary Dr. Ella Bell Smith. She's the author of Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. So Ella, even in telling us your own little bits of your own story, um, and as a note for a, a future discussion, an example of why tenure still matters. Um, one of the things that is embedded in that is the degree to which you were confronted with white men in leadership roles who were expecting you to model your work and research after theirs that what they did was what determined what was valid for yours, and it determined what they could see as valid. And then in the book, it's no coincidence that you found this as a real pattern that women were experiencing in the workplace. Can you talk to me, because this is part of a whole area I want to, I'm anxious to talk about with you, okay. is how that relationship of the difference in how black women and white women relate to white male leadership in the workplace and what its roots are, because this is all. And, and for our listeners, there is no way I'm going to do this book justice in the next 45 minutes. You have to read this. You need to read it in groups. You need to read it with people you trust Thank and you care about. You have to spend the time in it. But with talk a glass of wine or scotch. Yes, whatever you need, it'll be worth it. But talk to me about that dynamic and what it means for the challenge that you face. And as a Black woman, where you had to pull that resilience and perseverance from? You know, those, those, that, that's a multifaceted question. First point, I think we see white men empower white men, period, in very different ways. For white women, white men represent fathers, brothers, uncles, um, authority figures, if you will. Mm -hmm. Loving authority figures. Trusted all. authority figures. Trusted authority figures. They don't represent that for me and for black women. How um, they? You know, in fact, if we look at history, um, there might be a kind of let me stay away from. But what we also know is that Black women are very, display leadership in their communities. Mm -hmm. You know, we, 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 we use our voices strongly in our communities. Um, 
white men respect that. So there is research, uh, Ashley Rosette, she's at Duke. Um, her research has shown that there is a confluence, if you will, between um, black women and white men in terms of how they manage their authority That's and, and how um, white men, uh, when they have can make the connection, um, have a different kind of respect for black women. With that said, most of my mentors in academe have been white men. They have not been white women. I have had white women allies. I've had white women co-conspirators, <laughs> but I have not had white women sponsors. How okay. much of that is because white women were not in a position to do that or that white women were not seeing the importance of doing it and making time for it? Well, let's go back. Hold on to that question. That's a really good question. But I think for white women, they when they go when we when they want power, oftentimes, particularly the older generations, I can't say this for the younger generations, they positioned themselves underneath. And I don't mean that sexually by no means, but in, in position to white men thinking that the power would spill over to them. Mm -hmm. What we do know today is that white women, not in phenomenal numbers, but they are advancing. And, you know, just like white women have a familiarity with white men, uh, white men have a familiarity with white women, their daughters, their wives, their sisters. And we know if a white male has a daughter, he's going to tell that daughter to go and do whatever she wants to do in the world. Right. And in the workplace, he ha tends to have research shows more compassion towards women, but usually women who look like him. Yeah, I can't tell you how many men we've spoken to who have said they had their feminist epiphanies when they became the fathers of daughters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think white women will show, and, and the third thing, um, culture. Why do we think that white women and white men have a difference, different attitude, stance, belief system, assumptions, stereotypes, if you will, mm -hmm. um, different from each other towards black women, black men, people of color? Why do we think that? Right, because we understand there's race, but we also understand that racism is taught. You learn racism in places where you're loved, in your home, particularly for white folks, okay, white people. They learn it in their homes. It's reinforced by everything around them. And I know privilege is a terrible word right now, okay? No, but it's important to talk but about. It, it's important to talk about that, you know, the color of your skin. Yes, I'm a privileged black woman because I have a PhD. I teach in an elite business school, I'm, you know, high middle class, I'm a professional class. OK, but I don't have all that on me when I go into a store and they follow me and try to arrest me because of the fact they think I'm stealing some. OK, I don't have all the, I, oh, yeah, I don't have all those bells on me. OK, I don't have those tags on me. Um, but we, we have this assumption that somehow women get racism. White women get right. No, they don't get racism. Uh, they've learned about race and racism just like white men. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's even more harsh, if you will. It's more competitive. Um, there is competition. There's envy. There's, you know, a lack of understanding, um, lack of why, aren't you, why don't you see the world like me? And they want to have the authority. It's all right as long as, you know, you're reporting to me. But when I have to report to you, then it becomes a horse of a whole different color. Let me Brown see how I can sidetrack you. Because how come you've got the job and I don't? Oh, and yeah, you <laughs> you get race and gender. I don't get that. 
Right. So as I was going through the book, there were concepts that you were introducing the reader to that were coming out of the research that were helping make sense out of this. And one of them, and I want to back up a bit and dive into it, because I think it's going to help people who are new to these ideas or wrestling with them in ways that they haven't been able to get through. Mm-hmm. Uh, have some tools to make understand why this is the case so we can figure out how to change it. What's the why? And one of the things that you talked about in the book okay. was there were pairings of things, of differences that to me were helping me make sense out of A, the white privilege I didn't acknowledge for a long time Mm -hmm. and the things that I've seen and experienced myself in, in relationship with other people in the workplace. So one is the cultural difference between raised with a sense of resistance versus individualism. Could you talk a little bit about it? Because it seems like it's profoundly important in understanding these dynamics. That was one of the goodies that we found in our in our research. It's delicious. A, a way to elaborate on it. Um, let me give you two different stories. First story, um, poor Black girl grows up in the South, sharecropper. Mother's a sharecropper. Um, the father is in and out, has multiple families, children in, in, the, in the area. Um, she is dirt poor. She goes to school, she comes back, she takes care of the siblings and she helps her mother. Uh, she also cleans white folks' kitchens and their homes to make extra money so they can keep a roof over their head. Uh, but she's very, very smart. She's valedictorian in her, class, in her school. She's just smart as a whip, always has been. Her principal sees how smart she is. The principal, mother can't read or write. The principal takes the girl home one day in her senior year, explains to the mother, your daughter's brilliant. She needs to go to college. And um, the mother says, well, we don't have money for that. Principal says, we're going to get her a scholarship. I will pay for the application. They send the paperwork in. She gets accepted to college. Um, not only did she get accepted, she gets a full scholarship, full ride. And because she's going to college, the church gets their little monies together. They make sure that she has a little suitcase full of clothes to wear. And the principal pays for her books for the four years of college. She learns that the community lifts you up, that being poor is not something to be ashamed of. You lift up and you look back and you help others. And you can make a way, okay? But it's not just on you. You know, you, you, you have support. You've got a constellation of support. Now let's take a poor white girl, not sharecropping, um, grows up. The mother marries a alcoholic. The mother gets cancer. The mother dies. She's with her stepfather. She's also in high school. He doesn't want any parts of her. So he really nicely drops her off at the aunties. The aunties pass her around. She's got two outfits, two dresses. She washes one one day, wears the other one. You know, the the one trade-off day. And um, she eats lunch in the library where she reads books instead of eating. She doesn't care. Nobody gives her any money. Nobody gives her any support. The principal calls her in the office because she too is valedictorian. The principal says to her, you know, you're very smart and you probably would be successful in college, but there's no way you can go to college because you don't have any money. So why don't you see if you can get a job in one of these corporations as a secretary and see if you can work your way up. This woman learns that poverty is something to be ashamed of that if you don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you're not going to make it. You're out there to navigate and coast on your own. Even your own family won't be there to support you. That's culture, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's culture and class entwined, um, the intersection, um, when you add race to it. Um, What we learn, how we learn, um, what we believe we can do. Now, Put both of them in the workplace. The white woman is very good at telling you that she will recognize people who work very, very hard, 
She believes that, you know, you you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you don't need a whole lot of support. And the harder you work, the, the, the better you'll be. And oh, you better find a nice sponsor. And of course, he's got to be a white male. Okay. And it's a very competitive reality. She's worked. She pulled her way up. And it's competition. She sees other women as competition. Okay. The black woman, she's got a big time position in corporate America. She's doing mentoring. She's doing sponsoring. She pulls her group together at lunchtime once a month. Women who look like her on all levels tells them, this is how you can do it. This is what I can do to help. This is the first step. I mean, she schools them on how to navigate. Okay. And she takes her whole team in account. It's not just a me, myself, and I. It's there's my a team. So there's a fundamental difference in A, where they come from, but in how that shapes who they are and how they operate in the world. Both have poverty. And okay. both grows out of it, but in different ways. But different ways. And the thing is, we don't recognize that. And even if you... Even if you take kids, people on the middle class or upper class, because there are upper class black women, how we learn how to relate our beliefs, our assumptions are taught to us differently and are different. My guest today is Dr. Ella Bell Smith, a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. And we're talking about the complex and essential issues in her book, Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. So Ella, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. We were talking about these incredibly important concepts and realities that are anchored in the fundamental differences that culture brings to how we experience our gender, how we experience our race, and how we operate in the world independently and even together as women. It's, it's one of the many things that's so important in the work that you've done. And in it, we were talking about this relationship between resistance versus individualism. And you were telling these poignant stories of two women who grew up in abject poverty, who rose to become profound successes, but because of their cultures operated very differently. And as you were describing the kind of the way that the white woman in that story, by necessity, um, pulled herself up by her bootstraps, operated through the world alone, was never shown or given a larger community, It also seemed that that had to be part and parcel of a kind of American valuing, white American valuing of individualism. This idea that if I work hard, I can make it happen. Talk to me a little bit about how this concept of America as the great meritocracy exists side by side with a system that we know is structurally and systemic, it's systemic racism is real and pernicious and it's throughout the corporate environment. So how do these two things emerge in our experiences and why can't we see them more clearly? Mm. You ask really great questions. Um, (laughs) Meritocracy assumes that there's a level playing field. And again, if you work real hard, that old period in ethic, And if you do everything you're supposed to do, that somehow you're going to rise to the top. Doesn't work for white people, to be honest with you. Um, It definitely does not work because the playing field is not level. Educational patterns are not level. Um, Health patterns are not level. Poverty levels are not, you know, equal in any. Mm -hmm. We don't come in from an equal playing field we just don't so the reality of it is um if it's not a level playing field meritocracy is not going to work and it doesn't work um i think we have told women that if you go into the workplace and you work 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 somehow that's going to advance you that's not going to advance you we know that you've got to have sponsorship you've got to be developed and groomed um, and we know that if you don't have relationship, you're not going to make it. 
um, and the informal kinds of activities around relationship. If I am a first generation person in corporate America, white or black, okay, I don't know the norms. I don't know the assumptions. I don't know the behaviors. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Uh, And I'm feeling isolated. I'm feeling alone. And if I happen to be African-American, it's going to be 20 times worse. Okay, because nobody's going to reach out to me. I think for many white women, they suck it up. Um, They might not get as far as they need to get because they're not building relationship with other women, including women that look like them. Um, I think when they do catch on, you do see an advancement. But the way we have done diversity work, inclusion work, we separate white women and white men, do we not? Mm -hmm. You know, there's the gender issue. Why is it that when we look at other ethnic groups, we lump them together? You know, it's the black issue. It's the Hispanic. Is that gender does not exist, as opposed to being so primary to our existence in this world and our experience. And we don't look at that intersection in the workplace. We're now just saying, "Oh, oh, wait a minute, black women, Hispanic women—they—they have a different reality." Oh, yeah. There's a different relationship between the men and the women, really? Um, When we begin to unpack it, we find that the realities, the support systems, the mechanisms that allow us to succeed, particularly if we're first generation, are not there in place. And if you come from, if you're black or brown, it's even harder to learn those because nobody's gonna take your time to teach you. Um, Being highly individualistic, um, what white women have done, particularly the older white women in in the workplace, is they have found support in senior white men that help them to succeed. It's harder for a black woman to get those relationships. Um, and it's harder for a black woman to ask for those relationships, um, because the stereotype of the black woman is that she's strong. She doesn't need help. And, um, oh yeah, she's angry. She doesn't play well in the sandbox. Okay. We don't hear white women describe. Now there's a queen bee. There right. is a queen bee, right? Queen bee. Yes, amongst the very many icons and stereotypes. Right, right, right. So, you know, the women enact different stereotypes that we don't talk about either. And women hold stereotypes of each other. It's not just the men having the stereotypes. We all have stereotypes. So, How much of this, Ella, is anchored in where and how we feel unsafe and what we learn to do to help us feel safe. There was a pattern that you talked about with particularly white women in their relationship to white men in the workplace. And it was also reminded me of the the way I've come to understand the many women who did not vote for our first woman candidate as president. (laughs) And and an irony in what I noticed in some of the notes in the last 20 years. So I'll get there in a minute. So Uh this idea that women are white women get their power from the white men who protect them and advance them. The father figure. Back because white boss. women historically, um, if you look at Jim Crow, if you look at England, I mean, Great Britain, um, white women, particularly upper class white women, not the working class white, white women, they were treated crap, like crap. But yeah. the reality of it is you put on this pedestal. And this pedestal meant you were this delicate, dainty little creature that needed all the support and anchoring from a man. How does that play out in 2021 in terms of where we go to for safety, where we go to for help, where we go to for support, even though um, on one hand, we're strong and powerful. And, you know, I am seeing... A generation of women, I I think of um, the Dylan McGee's, the founder of Makers. She's got it. 
I'm seeing white women who are wide awoke. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I just have to say it. Gwyneth Paltrow, you can say what you want about Gwyneth. Gwyneth's awoke, okay? You know, uh, she is awoke. And I know this because I know her. You know, I'm slow, I know where her heart is. Um, there are white women now, Christy Smith, Accenture, she's awoke. I can come up with a whole bunch of white women in my posse that are awoke. But they took the time to go through the struggle to learn. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between me and you? Um, how have we learned about race, about gender? What is your lived experience versus what is my lived experience? We've been willing to have those conversations with them exploring because so often white people learn about race through their bumping into African-Americans. Okay, what I love about these women, they went on their own exploration. They found their books. They did their own research. You know, they took responsibility for learning about what are the African-American experience and how it permeates us today in terms of um, our, our systems and embedding, quite frankly, systemic racism. And you don't understand race. You know, we, we can talk about where well, there are all these successful. We've got a, a black female vice president and I love it. OK, but you don't understand um, discrimination. You don't understand the biases unless you look at it from a group level. You know, the one and two, the three, the one percent. Oh, yeah. Well, we've overcome. No, 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 no. You've got to look at the group. You've got to do a group analysis to understand systemic racism. Because otherwise you're seeing who defied the odds as opposed to what the Exactly. And By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Dr. Ella Bell Smith about her profoundly important book, Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. So Ella, the way that I'm making sense about this and trying to pull these pieces together okay. is that, and I'm wondering if this is part of a whole group that I aspire to be part of, of white women who are recognizing what we don't know and how to learn it. But that for many people, I'm going to posit that one of the catalysts is a recognition of the combination of the constraints that all women have existed within in the workplace, that white women have experienced with that rub of, am I going to accept the comfort of the care of the dominant white men versus having my own voice, having my ambition, really being in the driver's seat of my own life? And to then see how many advantages we have that the other women don't have, the people we don't understand. As people can I just, who, can, can I just interrupt you a minute, Laura? Sure. When you just gave that description, you just described some a, a very individualistic approach. I'm not sure that white women can see anything when we are stuck, when they are stuck in this highly individualistic approach. Tell me more. And I think that's part of the problem. Tell me more. If I did it, if I succeeded, I came from a poor background. I came from a working class background. I came from a privileged background. I was abused. Okay. Nobody helped me. Um, I think when you come out of that highly individual, individualistic stance, it's harder for you to, to understand and see um, I know, um, it, it was, it was, it was Gwyneth Paltrow and I can't quote her per se, um, in one of our conversations, but she talked about the fact that, um, black women were so we centered and white women were so me. Me. It's a profound um, difference. And how she looked at her black women friends in envy you know, because she wanted to be more we-centered. Um, I think she hit the nail on the head. How do you move from being just me-centered, which is very much highly individualistic, and, you know, there are Black people that suffer struggle with that too, okay, and have that. 
All right. And just to bring um, it into high relief, when I was talking about ambitions, goals, those are the me things. Those are not the we things. And I think we've got to understand what white women need to understand is the we. That white women will not totally succeed in the workplace or anywhere else until black and brown and Asian women and Middle Eastern women, okay, and poor women, all right, have a chance and become the we. It's got to be a we to make a difference because if not, we will be divided and we will be conquered. And that's what has continually, consistently has happened. Women have to learn to be co-conspirators with each other. Indeed. How much of that is anchored in a difference um, this, where class comes into it, social and economic class. How much of that is rooted or gets perpetuated um, by the women who are in the workplace where it's arguably a matter of choice versus the necessity of being at work and making progress and the achingly obvious need to pull all the people in your community with you versus where financial privilege blinds you to the importance of that. Well, why doesn't it blind the Carla Harris's of the world who is highly successful, knocking it down like crazy and has a we approach? I mean, it's sure. something at the core of our existence on what we were taught what we observed in our communities, what's passed down, what's in our DNA. And I think for white women, they've got to work a little bit harder at that. They get it for each other, but we have always been the other. If you look at the suffrage movement, you know, well, we're going to do white women first. I mean, there is that notion of somehow we're better. One of the things that really struck me in our research was when we asked white women about their 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 race, there was like, what are you talking about? Like only black people have a race. Okay, we don't have a, you know, what's that? Um, the lack of, of, of insight. Um, when you're at the head of the table, it's very hard to grapple with who you are sitting at that table and mm -hmm. the power and the privilege that you wield when you're in, in the middle of it. And I think it's difficult to move from a we if you don't first sit down and think about who you are and what you have learned about difference in your lifetime. What's in the DNA? What's the privilege look like um, for you? Ella, so one of the things that it you're helping, that you're articulating in such a profoundly important way and helping me see, is that these differences of how we're oriented, raised, kind of programmed to see our relationship to others in the world has this profound effect on how we go about making change happen and see each other. You're also raising for me, and there are parts of the book that talk about this in real in ways that um, give language to it in a way that can help all of us understand this. The absolute nonsense of trying to create or thinking you can go through the world being gender neutral or colorblind. <laughs> How inseparable from who we are and what our experience is, um, our gender identities and our racial identities and our, the cultures that we were raised in. And our class identities. Yes. That's why first generation is so tricky. I mean, we talk about um, what is the, you know, when you come in and you don't have confidence in yourself, what's the effect? What's the term that everybody uses? Oh, when you're an imposter? Yes. Yeah, imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome. Um, it's very different than set first, second generation and first generation creates the same kind of phenomena, but the people around you, first generation, don't fully understand this world you're navigating and you're pulling out of everyone's comfort zone. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so, and you don't have the the, the 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 you don't know how to play in that sandbox because nobody. No, and that sandbox that includes box. everything from exactly holiday party to and that is not imposter syndrome. We need to differentiate that because we're telling women, oh, you don't have imposter syndrome, but you very well might have first generation impact. Right. And, and once again, what we're telling them is that it's something you need to figure out how to fix in you. Which is the other problem, yes. Which is part of the problem. So as we, um, one of the things that you also mentioned that I think helps sensitize us to the dynamic that people are living with, and hopefully as a way to become more sensitive to the pressure of it, is um, biculturalism, what it means to have to go through life as a bicultural person. Can you talk a little bit about that? know if that fits anymore um that was my dissertation like i said i've been doing this now for what oh god it's too long to even say I'm i wish old. the listeners could have seen the look on your face <laughs> like i watched you kind of like weigh it out go back it's like oh god um well, for, as think, a new reader i have to say i still thought it was relevant it made well, me let me let me tell you where that came from here i was a, a working class kid in um, at Case Western Reserve, getting my doctorate and um, saying, oh, my God, you know, there's, what's, what's my future? Um, my mother, you know, was nervous and anxious about me doing this. Uh, she wanted me to get a Ph.D., but, you know, the, 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 the after effect, the world that I would, would be in and, you know, not having many role models, not having people that I could say, OK, this is what my reality is going to going to be. The biculturality, holding on to my blackness, which I do very, you know, I hold on to my 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 DNA. Um, I'm adopted. Um, I have a rich background um, on my, my my biological side of both of my parents. My father was my biological father was third generation physician. Um, you know, I just it just means a whole lot to me about the journey that my ancestors took. My blackness is important to me. Meanwhile, I'm moving into this, not just a white world, but an elite academic white world. Um, How do I balance that? I think that we have really not good ways to think about that. You're schizophrenic, you're this, you're that, as you move into these worlds. Um, And you don't appreciate both worlds that you come from. I appreciate both my worlds. Those are my realities. I span, I'm a boundary spander. I live in margins, on margins, every which way. Class-wise, every which way. Um, I don't want that taken away from me. And I think when I talk to young African-American women, I don't know, they call it coding. They have all kinds of new terms for it. Yes, code switching. switching. And I was like, what's that? And masking, right. Um, uh, right. And I masking is another one. Um, I think the biculturality is at the root of your masking. It's mm-hmm. at the root of your code switching. You come from multiple contexts. We all come from multiple contexts, okay? Um, so how do you make that switch going back and forth between cultural contexts? And who gets left behind? You can't bring everybody with you. Um, who are you being very clear about at your core? Who are you? And Ella, as you're describing it with pride and a depth, it sounds, and also having experienced it in some places where I have to leave my Jewishness and the first generation immigrants that were part of my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That it is exhausting that it can really be, there's the gift of holding on to this world and this part of your identity, but it's also taxing to have to navigate this and hide part of yourself all the time, which is why I think kids are now talking about this openly because it's a part of their regular experience. And you know, I think the other thing is, not only is it tasking, but I think what I've learned as I've gotten older and said, this is who I am, like it, or not. <laughs> if you don't like it, then just leave me alone. I don't care. I think that's the privilege of growing mature yes. and being wiser in the culture that appreciates me 
accepts all of me. I'm not leaving a part of myself behind. Um, I'm bringing in, you know, my hood as well as my elitism. Thank you very much. And we are actually quite grateful that you do that because you exist as a role model for the rest of us in so many ways. Well, so thank you. a little bit of time that we have left, you're sharing with us and I'm diving into just like little, little nuggets of the brilliance of what's been your life's work and this amazing book that's been reissued that ironically, sadly, marvelously is still highly, highly relevant. Where can people look if they want to learn more about you? They want to get more involved in this work. Um, you can go to Ella, know who you are. It's my website. Ella, know who you are. It's my website. Um, and my writings are on there. Um, my other research is on there uh, and the work that I've done. Uh, you can check the website at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. I'm definitely on there. I've been on faculty there now 21 years. Well done. Um, <laughs> that in Hanover, New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, and um, by all means, check out the book. Um, you can get it on Amazon.com. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating. It's important. Um, and take your time with it because it takes some time to go through it. Have a glass of wine with it. That's what I suggest. I think it's a dandy idea. Even though I have to tell you, I kind of like, I didn't eat dinner. I was so excited reading it. <laughs> Ella, I can't well, thank, I, thank you. I hope we get to hang out again. I mean, I would love to do this again. I would love to do it too. Whatever, man. I so would too. I'm so honored and grateful. I so love the time with you. The work you're doing is so important. Ella, thank you. And thank all you. of you, thank you so much for listening today and joining us. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast wherever you get yours. Follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business. And you can find me on LinkedIn. As always, enormous thanks to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our amazing sound engineer, Chris Tooks, our help in the office, Teresa Kosadek, and Kara Pogue. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 